Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, political bickering over the border takes on a more dire tone. And our new poll contains some worrisome signs for President Biden. Former President Trump swept up more delegates Saturday, winning GOP caucuses in three states as he continued his efforts to tap into voters' fear as a reason to support him. Biden's conduct on our border is by any definition a conspiracy to overthrow the United States of America. You know, he talks about democracy. He is a danger to democracy. Both Trump and Mr. Biden made trips to the southern border on Thursday. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. President Biden made his case for a bipartisan bill that would make significant changes to existing immigration policies and blamed his rival for killing it. Someone came along and said, don't do that, it'll benefit the incumbent. That's a hell of a way to do business in America for such a serious problem. We'll ask Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas what the president can do to secure the border without the help of Congress. Plus, the latest on the Israel-Hamas war and the growing U.S. sentiment for Israel to curb their military actions. We'll talk to Biden's surrogate and California Congressman Ro Khanna. The head of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, will also be here, along with Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan. They're pushing Congress for foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. Finally, a conversation with ATF Director Steve Dettelbach about guns in America and why new technology might require new solutions. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin an important week in the 2024 election in which both President Biden and former President Trump are expected to win hundreds of delegates in Super Tuesday contests in more than 15 states. On Thursday, Mr. Biden will make his State of the Union address. Our CBS News poll out this morning shows the former president with a four-point edge over the current president among likely voters nationwide. That is Trump's largest general election lead yet in our surveys this cycle. Joining us now is our executive director of elections and surveys, Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, good to have you here. Good morning. Uh, so our polling has shown perceptions of the economy have been improving. So why isn't that 
helping Joe Biden. Because it's the comparison that people are making between how they rate the economy today and what they remember it being during the Trump years. And it's the remembering that's the key word there. I specifically asked, how do you remember it? And two thirds of voters say they remember it being good which is also interesting because if you go back and look at the polling from that time, people did, in fact, rate it good in 2018, 2019. But then views of the economy cratered after the pandemic and the shutdowns. And it doesn't seem like they're remembering that part of it here. But that's the reality today. So it's that comparison that isn't holding up for the White House, number one. And then number two, you push that forward and ask, well, whose policies might make prices go down? And there's a lot of Republicans who think that prices will go down if Donald Trump gets elected. But what's troubling for Joe Biden is that you still get him associated with price increases, because a lot of people think that prices would continue to go up under his policies. That's why. Memory is an interesting thing, Indeed. isn't it? Um, Anthony, the campaign is leaning heavily into issues of democracy, access to voting, even calling Donald Trump a threat to democracy itself. Why isn't that helping the Biden campaign? Well, that's in the electorate's mind, but it's kind of priced in at this point, in this sense. You get a majority of Americans that do think that the former president tried to stay in office past his constitutional term. The ones who think that his approach to that was illegal, which is just under half, are in fact voting for Joe Biden. But everybody else, the ones who think he was following constitutional processes or wasn't planning to stay, they're all ready to return Donald Trump to office. So that split in many ways kind of defines not just the race, but also where we are as a country right now. Maybe it moves a little bit as the trials go forward. Maybe if there's a conviction, certainly something to watch. But net net, you get about an even split between Biden and Trump right now on who would do best at keeping democracy safe. Democrats are putting reproductive rights front and center in this campaign, betting that it will drive turnout among voters across party lines who are just concerned about this issue. Is that a safe bet? So there is a majority that feels that the overturn of Roe v. Wade was bad for the country. But what's interesting to me is this difference between then who blames Donald Trump for that, which is what the Biden campaign is trying to do. And that's a smaller number. But then coming even more immediately, the recent IVF ruling, we asked about that. And in fact, a large majority thinks that IVF should be legal. So again, this issue is going to stay top of mind and certainly is going to be a factor. I and think. it's interesting because in Alabama, where that ruling happened two weeks ago, they are working very swiftly to protect it uh, within the state uh, legislature. And the governor are expected to look at some of those bills this week. So it shows how resonant that one issue is. Mm -hmm. um, but Anthony, this is going to be such a key week. We have Super Tuesday upon us. Has Biden been able to consolidate the base of his party, the really the people who are committed to coming out as Democrats? Well, in many ways, no, not yet. And that's really important for two things. One is that a lot of the measures I've been describing here for Joe Biden are driven in part by the fact that Democrats are more critical of him and more critical of the, their president than Republicans are of Donald Trump. Now, Is that always the case? Well, in some ways, that's kind of typical for Democrats, right? It's often a more transactional approach, often a little more criticism in there, whereas Republicans, and they've told us, they really value loyalty to Donald Trump. So some of that is, is baked in. But having said that, it comes out in the political story in right now, Democrats being less likely to say that they'll definitely vote. And a lot of Joe Biden's numbers are in part lower because of that. His campaign has work to do to drive up that motivation. And he's not doing as well as he did in 2020 with some key Democratic groups. I would add this, though, Margaret, and I think it's important. Um, Joe Biden is trailing Donald Trump when we ask 
who has a vision for the country. And that speaks across party lines in many ways. And what I think is important there is that these are uncertain times in the minds of many voters when people see uncertainty, even if they don't rate things right now as good and they don't. They want a roadmap. They want to know where things are going. And that's a key gap that I'm going to watch over the next few months. Fascinating. Anthony Salvanto, thank you for your insights. Thank you. And we turn now to America's immigration challenges. A U.S. official tells CBS News that Border Patrol agents recorded nearly 140,000 migrant apprehensions in between ports of entry in the month of February, an increase from 124,000 in January. That doesn't include asylum seekers or those who were processed at a port of entry. Joining us now is the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. It's good to have you here in person, sir. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for having me. We know that immigration is a key issue for voters across the country. And according to our polling, uh, by more than five to one, voters believe President Biden's policies will lead more migrants to try crossing the border compared with President Trump's policies. Only 22 percent think your policies will decrease migrant crossings. President Biden himself has said border hasn't been secure in 10 years. Is there anything he can do without Congress to act now? Margaret, um, we as an administration have taken executive actions. Those executive actions are being litigated. We do need Congress to act. For more than three decades, our system has been broken. A bipartisan group of senators have put forth a real solution that would provide the Department of Homeland Security and other departments and agencies involved in the immigration system with resources that we need, mm -hmm. as well as policy changes that will fix this system. We need Congress to act. That is the enduring solution. But Congress won't act, as you saw. That proposal, which we covered extensively on this program, isn't moving forward in the Senate and no future at this point in the House. Um, and it has been reported that immigration uh, and, and that ICE um, is drafting plans to release migrants and slashing capacity to hold detainees because that Senate bill and the funding that was in it failed. Um, that's inaccurate. That's and inaccurate. That was in the Washington Post, and that is not true. That is that is inaccurate. And let me let me say. Will you have to reprogram since funds? We, we we have done we have reprogrammed funds in the past mm -hmm. um, because we have not been adequately resourced. Again, emphasizing the importance of the legislation that would provide not only more personnel and more resources for immigration and customs enforcement, mm -hmm. but 1,500 personnel for U.S. Customs and Border Protection, 4,300 asylum officers. This is vitally important. But in terms of enforcing our law with the resources we have, since May of last year, we have removed or returned more people than in any entire year since 2015. Over the last three years, we've removed, returned, or expelled more people than in the four years of the prior administration. We are doing more with less, but we need more and we need the system fixed. President Biden said it very frankly and very powerfully from Brownsville, Texas, just a few days ago. We need Congress to have a spine, do its job, which is work for the American people, and rather than allow a problem to fester mm -hmm. for political reasons, to actually deliver the solution that everyone agrees is needed. Short of this massive change of heart in Congress um, and productivity, uh, CBS is reporting that the president is considering executive action and invoking executive authority 212F, I believe it's called, to suspend the entry of foreigners when it's determined their arrival is not in the best interest of the country. If your agency is so strapped in terms of resources, could you implement that? Margaret, um, we've taken executive actions. Uh, former President Trump invoked 212F, mm -hmm. um, a, a statutory provision, and uh, that was enjoined by the courts. And so when administrative actions are taken, they are often litigated and they do not endure. The American people deserve and expect enduring solutions. 
and Congress needs to deliver on the American public's expectations. Do I understand you saying there then that you would have reservations about trying to use this same authority that the Trump administration had tried to use? No, that's not that's not what I'm saying. We have an obligation to consider all options as we do day in and day out. But those options are not going to deliver what legislation would. Right. We cannot administratively provide nearly $20 billion to the Department of Homeland Security and the Departments of State and Justice mm -hmm. to make our immigration system work better and to stop the ever-increasing immigration case court backlog that yeah. has been building year after year after year. We can't, we can't administratively give the resources that we need. We need Congress to appropriate. Congress controls the purse strings. But I want to ask you about a, a criminal case that has become a political rallying point. You heard Donald Trump use this phrase, migrant crime. A 22-year-old nursing student, I know you've been following this, uh, Lake and Riley in the state of Georgia was murdered allegedly uh, by an undocumented Venezuelan migrant. The suspect had been detained by Porter Patrol upon crossing, released with temporary permission to stay in the country. He then went on allegedly to commit crimes uh, twice, once in New York for driving a scooter without a license and once in connection with a shoplifting case in Georgia. Did those states and their law enforcement communicate to the federal government that this had happened? Should this man have been deported? Um, a few thoughts. First, Margaret, first and foremost, an absolute tragedy. And our hearts break for and our prayers are with the family. Number one. Number two. And importantly, as a prosecutor, having prosecuted violent crime and other crimes for 12 years, one individual is responsible for the murder, mm -hmm. and that is the murderer. And we work very closely with state and local law enforcement to ensure that individuals who pose a threat to public safety are indeed our highest priority for detention and removal. But are you saying there that the federal government had been informed about this individual and the alleged crimes he had committed in those states because he could have been deported if that was the case. Was there a breakdown in the system? So, um, Margaret, uh, there are a number of cities around the country uh, that um, have varying degrees of cooperation with the immigration authorities. We firmly believe that if... New York if it, did not? We firmly believe that if a city is aware of an individual who poses a threat to public safety, then we would request that they provide us with that information so that we can ensure that that individual is detained if the facts so warrant. And it sounds like they were not coordinating. Well, um, different cities have different uh, levels of cooperation. Mm -hmm. We were not notified in this instance. Uh, Mr. Secretary, so much more to talk to you about. We hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you so much, Margaret. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Mike Turner. Good to have you here in person. A lot to get to, but I want to just button up on the border because you've been warning and you have on this program of your concern of the national security emergency and the risk of terrorism because Absolutely. of the porous border. Um, Mr. Trump has described the border as a Biden conspiracy to overthrow the United States of America. 
Do you think that's the case? And if so, doesn't that argue for Congress taking up the bipartisan bill in the Senate? Well, this is what I think. So the FBI director, Director Ray, has himself personally stated uh, that we are at the highest threat since 9-11 uh, for a, a terrorist attack within the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and he cites the open border uh, for that. Now, we know that um, the... Um, the Biden administration, this didn't just happen to them. The, President Biden took a number of executive ac actions, over 50, that have resulted in the current situation that we have. It represents a national security threat, and it needs to be fixed. But Congress writes laws. The law that, that came <laughs> out of the Senate, the, the law that came out of the Senate would not have fixed this. In fact, it would have allowed um, a, a, you know, thousands of people to come across the border illegally. And, and I think that's probably where most members in, in Congress uh, fell off, you know, away from this the bipartisan deal is that we would, in fact, be sanctioning what the administration was doing in allowing people to come across the border. The border needs to be to be closed. We need to get back to legal immigration. We need to reform our legal immigration yeah. processes. And um, and it represents a national security threat, as you said. Well, it, it would have given more authorities <clears throat> to a future president as well. But I, I want to move on to a number of different topics because there are a lot of crises right now in the Middle East. Um, do you support the administration's decision to carry out these airdrops of food aid into Gaza and potentially create a, a maritime corridor? Well, I, I think it's I think it's essential that aid get into Gaza. Now, I was just briefed by the CIA director Burns Friday personally. He is the one who is conducting uh, the um, the ceasefire negotiations, and he believes that we're close. And I think that's going to that is very very important to accomplish. Uh, one because there are are hostages that are still being held as a result of Hamas and the uh, the murderous onslaught of October seventh, but also because of the desperate need for aid to get into yeah. uh, to Gaza. What's unfortunately is the Palestinians are being held hostage by Hamas. So they're down in bunkers, uh, you know, cowardly, not uh, uh, responding to the conflict that they began. Mm -hmm. while their people are starving, <clears throat> shows exactly that Hamas is really all about Iran and not about the Palestinians. Um, on Friday, President Biden twice mistakenly referred to Gaza as Ukraine. <clears throat> but in his remarks, what stood out to me was this. We're going to insist that Israel facilitate more trucks and more routes to get more and more people the, the help they need. No excuses, because the truth is, Aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough. It's the most direct I've ever heard him say Israel's responsible for a large part of this holdup. Should there be consequences for Israel standing in the way of that aid? Well, I think as Director Burns is negotiating, we're really close to a ceasefire. That is going to resolve this issue. Um, it's going to open up the aid corridors. Um, and certainly, I think in, in any conflict, both sides need to be held accountable. And I think certainly there are going to be questions as to what Israel has done and, and the manner in which it, it has operated. <clears throat> but it doesn't take away from the issue that the Palestinians are in a crisis because of Hamas. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, the, the fact that Hamas, in attacking Israel and in the manner in which they have hidden during this conflict, have allowed the, uh, the condition of the Palestinians to be in, in, in this state, uh, certainly says a lot about Hamas. And, yeah. this, and I have to give Director Burns a tremendous amount of credit. He's doing an excellent job, and I think he's going to be successful. Uh, we'll watch those developments as we get closer to the beginning of Ramadan. Um, you raised public concern that got a lot of attention last month. Um, that led to the White House declassifying intelligence that Russia's pursuing an anti-satellite capability, serious concern. They said it would violate a treaty that bans weapons of mass destruction in space. Did your disclosure make a difference here? Do you think the administration is now dealing with it? Right. And I, and I did not do this alone. Let's be clear. My, my committee, 23 to 1, voted to disclose this information to Congress because that's kind of our, our responsibility is when we have something that's critical and there's oversight of the administration where we believe that they're not taking action to notify Congress of, of this. And I do think they were sleepwalking into an international crisis. Um, and I do think that as a result of the fact that we notified the rest of Congress, we did hold the account, administration accountable and they're taking action. I 
from what I understand, there was conflict with the administration as to what to do. I think Jake Sullivan here needs a tremendous amount of credit uh, for moving on this and recognizing it's important. Um, I can't confirm or deny exactly what this is because they haven't declassified at all. Uh, but, you know, assuming if you take the news reports to be, you know, hypothetically accurate, you know, Jim Himes, my ranking member, has, has said this. Um, you know, if this, if this is true, this would be the equivalent to a Cuban missile crisis in space. Well, unfortunately, we don't have John F. Kennedy as, as president, and we need an administration that acts uh, and that understands that, that this is a huge national security, international security threat. Wouldn't it also argue for the Republican-controlled Congress to greenlight this aid to Ukraine that the Speaker has still not set a date for voting on? I know you support this. Yes, I, I absolutely do. do. We, have have to, we have to support Ukraine. Uh, the Speaker does support Ukraine. And I do think that, that probably the most important development that occurred last week was that Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries came forward and said that the Democrats will not join with the small number of Republicans, I, I, you know, frequently referred to as the Chaos Caucus, who, who say to the speaker that we will, we will remove the speaker if uh, he moves forward on Ukraine, moves forward on spending bills. They cannot do that without Democrat support. He said Democrats will not support that. We're, as long as we're moving forward with bipartisan bills, that includes funding the government, that includes Ukraine, that includes Israel. Uh, I believe as a result of that step, uh, that Speaker Johnson now has the leeway and the flexibility to work through Congress and the Appropriations right. Committee. I, I think it's going to be moving quickly. We're going to get our appropriations. They're not out of ammunition in April. They're not completely out of ammunition. I've been to, I was in Kiev last month and uh, met with Zelensky also at the Munich Security Conference um, and, and certainly you know, spoke to our military. Um, and they are rationing, but they are not out. This is critical. Yes. We have to support them now or they will lose. Um, and I think you know, the speaker sees that emergency. Hakeem Jeffries sees that emergency. And I think we're going to see bills hit the floor. We'll stay tuned for when that happens. Um, Mike Turner, thank you for thank joining you. us. We turn now to the latest on the war in the Middle East, where urgency grows to get aid into Gaza. Our MTS Tayyip reports from Tel Aviv. And we want to warn you, some images are disturbing. High above Gaza. Three C-130 aircrafts airdrop 38,000 meals in coordination with U.S. ally Jordan. On the ground, and the food parcels landed on the southern end of the besieged Palestinian territory, where around one and a half million people are sheltering. A minuscule amount of food given the massive need. <laughs> President Biden made the rare American humanitarian intervention after at least 115 Palestinians were killed and hundreds more wounded when Israeli forces opened fire as thousands had gathered for one of the first food aid deliveries in Gaza City in months. In what Palestinian leaders are calling Israel's flower massacre, people had swarmed the trucks in the desperate hope of getting a sack of flour only to be killed. The Israeli military continues to insist that deaths were caused by a stampede. But United Nations observers sent to Gaza City's Al-Shifa Hospital found the majority of the dead and wounded from the convoy had suffered from bullet and shrapnel wounds. The chaos and carnage only underscores how desperate the situation across Gaza is. Since the start of the war, the Israeli military has blocked most food, water and medicine into the besieged Palestinian territory, triggering a near famine in the north of Gaza affecting hundreds of thousands, according to the UN. Including 10-year-old Yazin Al-Kafarna. His mother says he has special needs, and getting just the basics, like bananas and eggs, to keep him alive has been impossible. I want the world to understand what we are going through, she says. I want them to help my son. But until Israel agrees to allow for a dramatic increase in aid through the land-crossing ZIC controls and distribution challenges are solved, starvation will only spread. And pressure is only growing to get a ceasefire and hostage release agreement between Israel and Hamas before the start of Ramadan next week. Both sides have signaled they may be close, Margaret. But in the words of a top national security official, until a deal is done, it's not done. MTS Talia reporting from Tel Aviv. And we're joined now here by Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. Good morning. Good, Good to morning. have you here. Thank you, Margaret. I imagine you support the decision to airdrop in aid to Gaza. Um, but this is only happening because the 
an ally of the United States, the largest recipient of U.S. military aid in the world, was not allowing in the aid. And now that it is coming across the border, the distribution is a massive, logistically complicated and unsafe operation. Should there be consequences for standing in the way of U.S. humanitarian aid? Yes, Margaret, there should. I mean, we should make it clear that we're not going to continue to transfer weapons, as I asked Secretary Austin at the hearing. But Margaret, look, he didn't answer you. He he did not. But uh, even you could tell from his testimony that he was concerned that we were continuing to transfer aid. Look, we can't transfer weapons. We can't continue to transfer weapons while we're transferring aid. That policy doesn't make sense. Here's the thing. Look, the killing of over 100 Palestinians were simply going to a food truck to get food, whether by a stampede or by shooting. We don't know all the facts. There should be an investigation. But that has shocked the conscience of the world. And my plea to this president, who I support deeply, is, Mr. President, call for a permanent ceasefire. There's too much suffering in the release of all hostages. The policy of bear-hugging Netanyahu has not worked. Reach out to some of the former Obama officials like Ben Rhodes, Tommy Weider, who have been saying we need a new direction of policy. We need a permanent ceasefire, release of hostages. We need to call for a Palestinian state, a summit with our Gulf allies. The current policy is not working. Do you believe truly in an election year that the president of the United States could be that head on direct in criticizing the prime minister of Israel? Yes. You know who was? President Obama. Yes. And he won two terms. And, you know, Ben Rose. Mr. Biden didn't agree with when he was vice president. (laughs) Look, Ben Rose, actually, he texted me this picture of Wisconsin in 2012 with the two days before the election. And they were a sea of young people out there, hundreds of thousands of young people. We need that base. I don't think in the head to head polling, this is the issue that is showing up. But I'll tell you, this is an issue for activists. This is an issue for organizers. This is an issue for young folks. And this is going to be a turnout election. And right now they want a new moral direction for our nation and for what's going on. Everyone agrees Hamas is a terrorist organization. What they did on October 7th is brutal. It should be condemned unequivocally. But the point is now it's time to get a permanent ceasefire and release of the hostages. And the president can do it. With one call, he can do it. Well, uh, that we'll see. Um, but on what you just went to from policy to politics, you are a Biden campaign surrogate. Proudly. Proudly, you say. Um, in announcing the airdrops, I want to play this soundbite for you, because this is what President Biden said. In the coming days, we're going to join with our friends in Jordan and others in providing airdrops of of, uh, additional food and supplies into Ukraine and seek to continue to open up other avenues into Ukraine, including the possibility of a Marine Corridor to deliver large amounts of uh, humanitarian assistance. This was a big decision. This was a big announcement. And the president of the United States twice got confused as to the country and place where the aid was being dropped. He said Ukraine twice. He, he Doesn't that concern you? I just misspoke earlier when I said we need to stop transfering uh, weapons. I said aid. I mean, people misspeak on television. This was he the announcement he of a major policy Look, I, change. I, I, here's the thing. I, I have been very direct in criticizing the president's policy in the Middle East. I have spoken with the president. He is fully coherent. He is on top of details when I have talked to him just a couple weeks ago. My view is uh, let's focus on policy. Let's focus on saving lives. Uh, And he'll have the opportunity to make the case about uh, his age uh, to the American people. But I have confidence in that part of it. I believe what he needs to do is to to stop the killing, the suffering. But but you are also talking about young voters and progressive voters. um, And they see that. Um, on the issue of the policy uh, in Michigan, we saw these two efforts to essentially protest uh, against Joe Biden by coming out and voting uncommitted. In Minnesota, another Super Tuesday state, there's a similar campaign underway. Are we going to see something like that in California as well? There are efforts on uncommitted in uh, California, a number of other uh, Super Tuesday states, and Is in Wisconsin. It, it, it's significant. I don't think, look, the president's winning overwhelmingly and I don't th- in the primaries, and I don't think this is going to affect his vote total, but it is going to affect his turnout and base. But, Margaret, this is not just a political issue. This is a humanitarian catastrophe. Secretary Austin said over 25,000 dead. 
our weapons are going there. There's starvation that's taking place. There are reports that 58,000 more Palestinian dead within six months if we don't have a ceasefire. The president can get this done. The disagreement is Hamas wants a four and a half month uh, wait, uh, Bibi Netanyahu doesn't want to uh, have that long a ceasefire. Get, have the president in there, get it done, call, become a peacemaker, get, recognize a Palestinian state, a two-state solution. Uh, and I, I think he can, and I think he can win back young people. But just on the policy point, there aren't new authorities the president would need to halt those armed shipments. He has those authorities. He's choosing not to use them. He has it, and he could call for a ceasefire. He can stop protecting them at the U.N. There are a lot of levers. And I'm hoping after this morning he'll, he'll move in the direction of, of uh, taking a new approach. Well, I, I point this out because also back to the, the cynical politics of this in our polling, we see nearly twice as many Democrats rate Biden's presidency fair or poor compared with Republicans who say the same about Trump. The president is having a problem with his base. And that's why I think he needs to do something bold. This is a problem. This yeah. is this is a problem. But if he can turn it around, not just by calling for a ceasefire, if he becomes the first American president to convene Gulf allies, to convene Israel, to convene municipal leaders in Palestine and civic society and said, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to recognize a Palestinian state. I'm going to have a two state solution. And I'm going to recognize that the security of Israel matters, but the end of occupation matters. He can become a hero. I, and this is Look, the president has had an amazing public service career. My plea to him, forget electoral politics. Do this for people in the Middle East. It'll be a capstone to his legacy. I hope he'll meet with some of the progressive members of Congress to make that case to him. Ro Khanna, good to have you here in studio. Thank, Thank you. you, Congressman. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We turn now to Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. Good morning and good to have you here in good studio. Good morning, Margaret. Good to be here. Thanks. You have said the U.S. is in the midst of one of the most dangerous times since World War II. We just yes. heard from the House Intelligence Committee chairman saying it is imperative to get this aid to Ukraine. They run out of ammunition soon. Yeah. Are you confident Republicans can deliver this? Well, look, I voted for the supplemental, and I voted for the supplement, the national security supplemental. And I did for a couple of reasons. The first one is what you just said, Margaret, which is this is a new era of authoritarian aggression. We got the dictators all around the world, Xi Jinping, Putin, Iran, the Ayatollahs in Iran, North Korea. They are working together. We need a strategic response to that. A very dangerous time. Second, the Biden administration, with regard to national security, has not been serious. They cut the defense budget every year, inflation-adjusted cuts. By the way, Secretary didn't mention it. They cut Homeland Security every year, too. Those are the two areas this administration consistently cuts, weakens our Homeland Security, weakens our defense. But this aid should be much more, um, in terms of how we talk about it, uh, in terms of the supplemental. It's less a foreign aid package and more a package about rebuilding our own, our own industrial capacity to, right. to build weapons for ourselves. Mitch 60- McConnell talks about that, yeah. but it's your fellow Republicans in the House who seem skeptical because well, the Democratic votes are there. Part, part of the reason I'm, I'm on your show today is to talk about it because 60% of this supplemental, and look, it's not a perfect bill. The House can make it better. 60% goes into our ability to build weapons for America. Everything from nuclear subs by the way, almost 40% of our attack subs are in maintenance right now. We don't have the industrial capacity to protect ourselves. Xi Jinping is scared to death of American subs. This supplemental unlocks $6 billion for our sub capacity to build subs, $5 billion to produce uh, 155 millimeter 
how it surrounds in everything in between javelins, um, stingers, uh, tomahawks. So this is about our industrial capacity to protect America first. And then, of course, we need to get some of these weapons to our allies who are facing existential threats, whether it's Taiwan, Israel and Ukraine. And I think when you talk about it from that perspective, it should unite Republicans, not divide them. Um, I imagine it would help if Donald Trump endorsed this package. (laughs) He hasn't done it. Um, Here's what he said last night at a rally in Richmond about Vladimir Putin. Putin, you know, has so little respect for Obama that he's starting to throw around the nuclear war today. You heard that nuclear. He's starting to talk nuclear weapons today. Uh, I was waiting for that to happen. But uh, we have a fool, a fool as a president. He said, we will never leave until there is complete and total victory. (laughs) We might be there for a long time. Um, I know you have endorsed Mr. Trump. He seemed there to confuse Biden for Obama. He also suggested that there were U.S. troops serving in Ukraine. Are you comfortable about his mental fitness? Yes, yes. Compared to the current president, 110 percent. And as your polling shows, I think the American people have real concerns where President Biden is with regard to his um, fitness for office, particularly his mental acuity and uh, relative to President Biden or relative to former President Trump. I don't even think it's a close call when you see the two in action. But to be clear, there are no U.S. troops serving on the battlefield in Ukraine. There are military advisors. There aren't troops, correct? No, but I mean, look, I mean, the other thing that, okay, and, that and, some within your party believe that. And well, that I was mean, what he suggested I, there. I, I would again, I would go back to um, who is demonstrating more mental fitness to be the president. And I don't even think it's a close call between President Trump and President Biden right now. You recently retired after 30 years in the Marine Corps. Did. Jim Mattis, uh, you know him well. I do. Reti- retired and revered general wrote in his resignation letter from the Trump administration he had to leave because of a difference of views on treating allies with respect and being clear-eyed about competitors. John Kelly, also retired Marine Corps general who served with Mr. Trump, described him as a person that has no idea what America stands for, has no idea what America is all about, a person who admires autocrats and murderous dictators. That's a, a stunning assessment from two people who served alongside him as to the values of Donald Trump. Why do you think he represents your vision for America? Well, I think one of the things, and look, I respect General Kelly and uh, Secretary Mattis tremendously. I think the key, though, Margaret, is to look at the record and the record of what uh, the Trump administration working with Republicans did in terms of foreign policy was dramatically stronger and focused on our allies then certainly the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration. And let me just give you a couple examples. Do you remember why Mattis resigned? Oh, I do remember why, that my, had why, directly why, why Mattis resigned. I mean, I'll give you an example. In terms of Russia, uh, particularly, you remember President, Obama, uh, President uh, the, the Biden, um, Obama, Obama-Biden administration was providing them MREs right. after the invasion of Crimea. What did the Trump administration with Republican support do? We got them javelins. Mm-hmm. We Lethal significantly, significantly bolstered, significantly American troop presence in the Baltics and in Poland, which the Obama administration refused to do. We dramatically increased American defense spending. The, se- the second term of the Obama administration, Obama-Biden, yeah. cut defense spending by 25 percent. They wrecked readiness. I'm the uh, ranking member on the Readiness Subcommittee on Armed Services. Mm-hmm. Trump and the Republican Senate, uh, we brought re- military readiness back. And we unleashed another element of American power, and that's American okay. energy. So these are all strong elements of the yeah. Trump administration record working with Republicans that made us stronger. Okay. And right now, if you look around the world, you see chaos. And a lot of that, in my view, has been driven by the Biden administration's uh, weakness. I have to leave it here because we are out of time. Senator, good to have you here. Margaret, good to be here. Thanks. We'll be back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion 
while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Our CBS News poll also found that crime and gun policy were among the top issues for voters in 2024. On Friday, we toured the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms here in Washington. Although violent crime is down across the country, ATF Director Stephen Dettelbach says the agency is trying to do more to reduce gun violence. I think it's fair to say that for the agency that is the only federal law enforcement agency that solely deals with violent crime, mm-hmm. if you're really concerned about violent crime in the United States, this agency is way, way, way too small. 5,000 people. 5,000 people total, 2,500 agents. Let me give you a, a sort of a baseline. In one city, New York City, there are 36,000 police officers, right? Uh, 17 times the entire ATF agent corps for the entire country. I mean, if there's no such thing as public safety on the cheap, you know, we have to support the police and we have to support the federal agents that are out there risking their lives every day. Is there a way to use what you have now in a sharper way, in a more targeted way? We have to do that, right? That's the name of the question that I have every day. What do you need? If we don't get any more resources, uh, mm-hmm. the president's asked for more. If we don't, what we are doing to try and sharpen, we use what's called crime gun intelligence, uh, which is uh, a fancy term, but basically it applies to being able to follow the gun. So a crime gun, which is something that's involved with the crime, and squeeze every last bit of evidence and intel we can out of the thing that comes out the front of the gun, mm-hmm. the bullet, the cartridge casing that's ejected out the back of the gun, the outside of the gun, things like the serial number, and the inside of the gun, the markings inside of the gun. The ATF is prohibited by law from creating a centralized database of registered gun owners. How big of an impediment is that to actually stopping gun traffickers? This happened in Highland Park uh, in the July 4th massacre, Mm -hmm. right? Firearm, serial numbers put in. We run an urgent trace and get back to the police in just a matter of hours, the identity of the person who purchased that firearm, they catch the person before they kill again. Okay, how does that really happen in real life? The way it doesn't happen is we punch in a person's name and up comes, oh, they own so many guns. Congress has prohibited us from doing that. We pay somebody to take out search function in order to comply with the congressional notion that there can't be a gun registry, the law that there can't be a gun registry in the United States. It's not a notion, it's a law, Mm -hmm. and we comply with it. That, that means that we have to work within that system. Last week, the Supreme Court heard arguments over bump stocks, devices that effectively turn semi-automatic rifles into machine guns. And the question of whether a Trump administration ban was lawfully implemented by the ATF. This debate that we heard is about more than bump stocks. Mm-hmm. It's about these, 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 all these different products which are being used to turn semi-automatic weapons into machine guns. And if you had asked most police chiefs or most agents who are running towards this gunfire, it's a very dangerous situation for them too. Uh, Whether 10 years ago they thought this was even a possibility, 15 Mm -hmm. years ago, they'd have said no. Machine guns went the way of Al Capone and the Tommy gun. Unfortunately, technology can be used for good and technology can be used for bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I want people to understand is we at ATF are doing everything we can within the law to try and uh, protect them under the laws we have from these unlawful machine guns. Now, if somebody wants to pass additional laws, mm-hmm. we'll take those. For a lot of people at home, they are horrified when it comes to their own children. Whatever their view on guns are, they want their kids to be safe. How do Americans? protect their children against gun violence in this environment? Well, I'm a parent. We were talking about that. And I've raised uh, two children. 
uh, and uh, I think about this too. I think the temperature on this issue mm-hmm. is way, way, way too high. Uh, and, it, it, and I understand why it is, because as you say, this is our kids, right? The leading cause of death of children in the United States is firearms violence, right? Not cancer, not cars, guns. This is kids and teenagers. On the other hand, people have very passionate feelings about their Second Amendment rights, mm-hmm. right? I sat in a room in Lewiston, Maine last week uh, with uh, families and survivors of the, the mass shooting that happened in Lewiston a couple months ago. And there were people in that room, first of all, tremendous grief, unspeakable uh, frustration and anger. There were people in that room who had really different views on these sort of policy questions, right? Mm-hmm. As everything from how can somebody get a weapon like this in this country uh, to, uh, to, you know, but I really value my weapons in the same room. Weeks after they've lost a brother or a father or been shot themselves, right? Those people were able to sit in that room with all that grief and have a discussion. If those people in that grief can disagree with each other but still sit and have a conversation in a civilized way, what is the excuse for the other 350 million of us not to be able to do that? We owe it to those people to try to get what we can agree on done. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were CBS News Elections and Surveys Executive Director Anthony Salvanto, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Mike Turner, California Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan, and the Director of the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau, Stephen Dettelbach. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. 
follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.